0: Tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The process of checks and balances, the governor is targeting 30 bills that he may potentially veto. The deadline is July 12th, but the list gives proponents and opponents an idea of where he is leaning in this final phase of vetting the bills that lawmakers passed this session. And this morning, HPR
1: reporter Sabrina Bowden joins us in studio. Good morning. Good morning, Katherine. So the state legislature, they pushed through over 340 bills to the governor. And as you said, there's about 30 that he intends to veto. Um, This list that the governor came out with is really a sense of sort of where he's leaning and what he's thinking about. And he gave his rationale for a few of them. Uh, But there are a few bills that he said that he pretty much will be vetoing, which would be Senate Bill 2510 on renewable energy, as well as House Bill 1570, which is the one on uh, flavored tobacco and vaping products. His rationale there was that the language of the bill just isn't explicit enough. And uh, he wants to give the Senate and the House another chance to work on this bill.
0: I did see during the news conference that the governor said he was looking to find something to uh, hang his hat on when it came to the renewable energy bill. Um, But he he seemed pretty firm that he was going to Veto
1: that one. Yeah, he pretty much said that he could not find any reason to pass this bill or sign it into law. Uh, He kept calling it a mandate rather than sort of guidance. Um, And he said it would really upheave a bunch of uh, different plans and developments that are already in place. And then the vaping bill, uh, I know there were good intentions, but it was a last minute
0: ad that gave an exemption to the menthol products.
1: Yeah, and he was saying that uh, there wasn't enough public input on that part of the bill. So I believe advocates were sort of praising the governor for throwing this on his veto list. Um, And we really want to see it in the next um, iteration of the legislature. Right, and see what else they do. So what else is on that list? So we have Senate Bill 3089, which was sort of the bill that everybody's been calling uh, would limit the governor's uh, emergency powers. And it comes off the heels of gay's March 2020 pandemic era um, emergency proclamations that kept getting extended. And if you remember correctly, the state ledge was, they wanted more power. So there were some bills that were being thrown around, um, but this year they passed 3089, uh, which would give the state legislature the power to terminate state emergency orders uh, with a two thirds vote. But it also requires uh, mayors and counties to get governor approval for their own state or their own county emergencies. Um, And that's sort of what Ige had pointed to as the reasons why he wants to, uh, or he intends to veto this uh, Senate bill 3089, which would be pandemic response, state and federal partnerships and disaster funding.
2: Importantly, the counties lead our emergency management activities and they are supported by state and federal government. This bill would delay county emergency response. Mayors cannot wait to get approval before issuing emergency proclamations for their counties. This bill also jeopardizes counties ability to get disaster relief funds. As seen with the pandemic, having the flexibility to issue emergency proclamations to maintain the safety of our community was pivotal for the state of Hawaii.
0: And it's interesting because I know, um, I think I saw a report recently that said that Hawaii's response uh, was pretty good, rated it high, I think, uh, compared to other states across the country.
1: Yeah. And on that list was also, I think, Massachusetts as uh, also the top leader in pandemic response. So there were a couple other bills that the governor was looking at uh, that has to do with government and transparency. There was Senate Bill 3252, which would put a cap on costs for certain uh, public records, as well as would waive duplication fees for electronic copies, as well as Senate Bill 3172, which would require electronic audio and video of meetings to be maintained as public record. So there was a veto rationale on that with that the timestamps connected with um, these videos would just be too burdensome for some boards and commissions to have the staffing.
2: Although the technology and the tools itself is relatively low cost, it would definitely require a huge and would place a huge burden on many of the boards and commissions. And in many instances, we don't have a significant amount of staff uh, assigned to support. The concern that I heard from many agencies is that it would lead them, to stop making video recordings available because of the requirements of what would be required should a video um, recording of the <laughs> meeting exist.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, what weighing the a public's right to know, and would this bill get in the way of actually getting access to some of those? As
1: meetings? well as uh, taxpayer costs for everything. Yeah. So where do we go from here? So the Senate is meeting this morning to discuss uh, sort of the veto list. Um, according to the state constitution, they if the House and the Senate can get a two-thirds vote, they can override a veto. Uh, but the governor has until July 12th to either veto, sign, or let a bill become law without a signature.
0: Right. That, that's a big question. Do they want to go back into special session? And are these overrides worth it? Or can they make the fixes in January when they come back? Mm-hmm. all right well thank you so much sabrina thank you we have been talking to hbr sabrina bowden about the latest uh with the governor's veto list uh you can find her stories online at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio? Coming up, your backyard quiz.
2: Onihoa, Olehua, Onihao, Okawa, Oa, O Moloka, O Lana, O O Hawaii.
0: We have an interview with the ghost guy, Lopaka Kapanui, coming up on the show. So today, we're testing your knowledge of local creepy folktales, and we have plenty of them. There's the night marchers, ghosts of old Hawaiian warriors who travel along paths uh, around places where battles took place or near heiau. If you're on the Big Island, you're taught at a young age to pick up any elderly Hawaiian lady walking on the side of the road, and that's because she may be the fire goddess Pele in one of her many forms. And to ignore her would invite her anger on you. Perhaps one of the uh, most well-known of these folk tales in the state is the one that says you're forbidden from taking a specific item over the Pali Highway here on Oahu. Those who have disregarded this advice have had their cars stall out, unable to start again until the item was thrown out. For today's Backyard Quiz, we want you to tell us what this item is. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. Uh, First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells you uh, you got it right.
3: Support for the backyard quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. Nairithawaii.com
0: President Joe Biden is pushing a three-month federal gas tax holiday as we see gas prices rise. But here in Hawaii, there is a little talk from the EGA administration about providing a state tax, a gas tax holiday. This morning, we talked to State Tax Director Isaac Choi. He tells HPR he doesn't think it will have much of an effect at the pump, but overall will impact road
4: repairs and other special funds. The state fuel tax is approximately 16 cents per gallon, depending on the type of fuel, it's kind of important to know that you know per month we use about uh, just gas alone. We use we use about 34 million gallons of gas, so we collect about five and a half uh, million dollars in gas taxes. And then of course there's taxes on every other type of fuel too. So the total amount of uh, fuel taxes collected for all taxes, that's diesel, uh, liquefied petroleum, small boats, uh, aviation fuel, it's about approximately $9 million per month. And that's how much we collect, which kind of breaks down to about, all uh, oh, $300,000 per day, $2 million per week. So that would be a direct impact on, on the uh, residents of the state of Hawaii on statewide state fuel taxes. Now, you know there's county taxes too.
0: Right, and it's different for each county.
4: Yeah, and it's different for each county, and they collect approximately $7.5 million per month. For, for, for you folks that are really you know, into statistics and everything, you can get all these statistics on our website. If you go to tax.hawaii.gov and you click on the reports and data section, and then you go to the current monthly reports, you'll get a month-by-month breakdown on the fuel taxes, uh, the amount of gallons, uh, how much collect, the type of fuel. Uh, you get those reports all the way back to 1997.
0: And this money, you know, is going to pay for our highways and right. roads.
4: and also at that at that website, it tells you exactly where our money goes. It goes to the state highway special fund, the state airport special fund, the state boating special fund. So it, it tells you exactly how much we collected and where the money goes.
0: And so, you know, this idea of a, a state or county tax, fuel tax holiday, I mean, we aren't hearing officials here, you know, clamor for that. Uh, it's really the federal tax holiday that we've been hearing uh, more about
4: so the administration hasn't made a decision on a state fuel tax holiday, but, you know, the impact on suspending those taxes will go to a special fund. Basically, it goes to our highways, our airports, our boats, and then, of course, our, you know, uh, environmental response deal. So very, very little goes to the general fund. So the impacts uh, on suspending the fuel tax will have a direct impact on the drivers and the users of our highways, airports, and, of course, boating facilities.
0: Well, what do you say to people who think, hey, we just got a boatload of money under the uh, infrastructure bill and that a lot of that money is going you know, to repair our bridges and our, our highways. Uh, so why not give the drivers a break for a little bit?
4: Well, I would, I would say this to them. All money spent by the state, whether it's general or special funds, is, is actually um, appropriated by the state legislature. So I would say, if the state legislature so is so inclined to give um, these particular breaks, they they can. I do know all the monies that we collect goes to special funds, and we can we can always surplant funds, and we can do other things other ways. So when you say we got a whole boatload load of money from the federal government, well, because of the federal government's uh, subsidy programs uh, for the pandemic, uh, that's how the, the, our boatload of money was generated. Right. Uh, yeah, we can move monies around to accommodate uh, certain relief w- measures for the uh, taxpayers. But I think, you know, that would be the purview of the legislature more than the executive department.
0: And then, you know, as, as we look at this you know, situation that we're in because of the pandemic, you know, one of the things that did uh, come up is this issue of peer to peer ride sharing. Oh, yes. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, the the tourists keep coming, and I don't know what the situation is with the rental cars, if we've got enough or not, or if people are still using, you know, companies like Turo. Um,
4: What's the snapshot? Okay, the snapshot is there was a peer-to-peer car-sharing bill that passed. It just clarifies our position that we have always taken that the marketplace facilitator is responsible for collecting the general excise tax and also the rental vehicle surcharge on that. And, you know, specifically, I can talk to Turo because Turo did, we did assess Turo for the taxes, and they did take it to court, so it is public information. So they are contesting collecting the tax, but at this particular point, it is in our state court system. So we, you know, we look forward to uh, a favorable decision on that.
0: It's the state's position that Turo owes money uh, to the yeah. state tax office, excise yeah. tax?
4: Absolutely. And, and you know, um, it's, it's, it's an equity thing right? Um, Turo is um, just no different from uh, any other car rental agency. You know, your Avises and your Hertz and, and Enterprise, you, you know, and they should be paying the same amount of taxes as those particular ones. So I don't think they, they deserve any kind of special dispensation. I understand that peer-to-peer is a new concept, but it is car rental. It's a car rental business.
0: So whether it's Turo, or uh, Uncle Joe on the Big Island that started a company that is renting out cars, you still owe a share of that to the state?
4: Yeah. So, so you should be passing on first the general excise tax and then, of course, the rental vehicle surcharge. You know that $5.50 a day surcharge for renting a vehicle? They should be collecting that from the people who rent the cars, right, and passing it on to the state.
0: If they are not...
4: Then I get mad.
0: Okay, <laughs> and you go after them,
4: yeah, I mean if you really think about it, it's a fairness thing right if if one one type of entity is is paying for doing essentially the same thing, then of course everybody be should be paying the exact same amount. you know one one shouldn't be getting a tax break over another.
0: and so the bill that uh, lawmakers passed this year clarifies the state's position on this and spells it out for these uh, ride-sharing platforms?
4: Yes. And so we've always taken the position that the car owners, the people, you know, the local people who actually rent their cars out, they owe me a half percent on whatever amount they rent the car out to. And then the marketplace facilitators, for example, Turo, would have to be collecting the four percent from the the tourists and also the, the rental vehicle surcharge. Uh, from the tourists and then passing that along to the state. But I think as far as the subject of taxation is concerned, uh, that has never been in question. The, the department hasn't changed positions on, on how we tax these things. The, the legislation that I've seen on peer-to-peer car sharing is more on insurance and, and uh, damage waivers and things of that nature, Okay, more, more consumer protection type of issues. At this point, though, uh, the
0: governor has not indicated that he's going to veto the uh, ride-sharing uh, bill. I think it's 1971.
4: Yes, it is 1971. He, he is not going to veto it.
0: So it's just a matter of, of uh, seeing when he actually signs this into well, law. Well, usually, you
4: know, as far as the tax aspects of that bill, it's not new law. It's, it's merely just to, you know, emphasize and clarify if, if there is any kind of uh, argument that they would like to put uh, put forth, but we, the, the department itself in its tax administration hasn't changed its position.
0: Okay, but it just removes the amb- ambiguity.
4: Well, from the tax director's point of view, there is no ambiguity. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay.
0: All right, and then, uh, gosh, and then so we'll, we'll see how this plays out um, in the courts. Right. Uh, but at this point, then, uh, uh, any listeners out there who are engaged in uh, in renting out their cars, need to know that uh, you expect your fair share.
4: Yeah, and again, if I could just repeat, for those people who do rent their cars out, uh, make sure you get a GE tax license. You, you pay a half percent as a, as a wholesale rate on on the vehicle, and then the, make sure that the platform itself is you know collecting. So, and that, that's a huge sign. When you look at the platform, if they're not collecting the 4% and the, the rental vehicle surcharge, the $5.50, you can pretty much rest assured they're not paying it. Now, if push comes to shove, then, and I have to think this through a little bit more, but, you know, we could go after the lessor of the car, the owner of the car, right? Okay. And I don't want to do that. Okay. And, and, and if you really think about it, Catherine, think about it, that there's thousands and thousands of cars, Right but there's only one Turo. I, right. pre- I prefer just to collect it from Turo, the marketplace facilitator, right? Instead gotcha. of trying to go after thousands and thousands okay. of cars, that, that's gonna be like a nightmare for me.
0: That was State Tax Director Isaac Choi talking about the latest development with Turo, the peer-to-peer ride-sharing platform. He also provided a breakdown of how much we are paying in gas taxes at the pump. In addition to federal taxes on fuel, the state assesses a tax on every gallon of gas in each county also adds a tax to shore up its coffers. Honolulu Civil Beach Reality Check continues a deep dive into the landscape of the dialysis industry here in the islands. Reporter Anita Schneider joins us today. Good morning.
5: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, you know, the last time we talked, you had a story about the uh, home dialysis machines that were becoming available, but today you look at uh, some of the rules around dialysis centers.
5: Yes, I um, attended a virtual uh, hearing a couple weeks ago, and it was really interesting where one dialysis company was arguing for the opportunity to open up a a new uh, dialysis center on Maui, and the other one that's already operating on Maui was uh, opposing that proposal and saying, you know, it doesn't meet the um, state's requirement that, um, you know, that they receive a certificate of need. And so um, that's what I was looking at in today's story, the certificate of need regulations, which many states have, and, um, but to varying degrees, and so looking at how the, the way that Hawaii's regulatory environment affects what sort of dialysis is available for patients.
0: And so uh, the companies that we've got operating here in the state, uh, Fresenius is one of them.
5: Yes, yeah, so um, in that hearing, uh, Fresenius was the company that, you know, is already operating on Maui. They've been in, in Hawaii for a long time. They run the Liberty Dialysis Clinics that you might see if you're driving around, and they're one of the biggest... Dialysis companies in the nation. I mean, we're talking about a multi billion dollar industry. Um, And so, um, you know, when you look at US renal care, they're also a a company trying to uh, enter into the market. Um, You you can see how this is, you know, a a for profit industry, um, but the way that the state's regulations are set up is. You have to be able to prove that there's a need for this.
0: Uh, so, yeah, so this hearing was looking at uh, whether there was this need for a th- uh, another player in the market there on Maui.
5: Yes. And so it was, it was really interesting because on one hand, Fresenius was arguing that the growth is in the in-home dialysis um, you know, market. and so they're saying, yes, there's going to be more need for dialysis, but that's going to go to patients who are going to have their own machines at home. And so there isn't really a need for a new center. You know they're concerned that a new center could pull profits away from their existing center and they say that that Maui center's profits actually subsidize rural dialysis uh, clinics. Um, On the other hand, um, you know, the uh, U.S. Renal Care, which is the company that's trying to establish a dialysis clinic there, is saying, hey, you know, we talk to patients and to nurses, and everybody's saying that this is really necessary and important and will help people who are facing long commutes. Um, So, you know, one thing that's really interesting about Hawaii's Certificate of Need program is that in other states, there are, um, you know, different rules about who can oppose. Uh, these types of applications. So in some states, you're not allowed to have competitors oppose them. Or there are exceptions for rural areas that say that these um, requirements aren't needed for rural areas. Or they just make it a little bit easier by waiving the application fee if you want to build a a new facility in a rural area. Um, So there's a lot of options for Hawaii if, if people are taking a look at these regulations. You know, it doesn't mean you don't have to just have them or not have them. but There's a, a world of variety across the different states that have them. And uh, U- a U.S. renal
0: tried to break into the market on Maui as well, right? And it had, ran into some roadblocks.
5: Yes. Um, you know, the U.S. renal cares. actually, they have previously tried to apply to um, have a Wailuku dialysis center. So this application is a uh, new version of that. It would be in Kahului. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they did that in Hilo where they... Um, applied for Hilo um, for Hilo Dialysis Center, and they got turned down because it was uh, the state determined that they agreed with Personius's argument that there wasn't enough uh, healthcare staff in Hilo to really justify mm-hmm. a new facility. So, Reno Care had to go back and reapply um, with Hilo, and so. Um, they ended up getting that approved but that means that the actual facility is going to be um, set up a couple years later than the uh, previous facility
0: okay um, and
5: so mm-hmm.
0: and then we'll, we'll find out about the uh, the Maui one uh, next month yes yeah, in
5: a couple of weeks it's a, right. a 30 days for the
0: decision all right okay well thanks so much Anita
5: thanks for having me
0: that was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's reality check you can read her story online at civilbeat.org
3: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about summer art classes and workshops for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org.
6: I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, during the pandemic shutdown, we heard that domestic violence was on the rise. Was it?
7: What we find is that the crimes are actually lower during shutdowns.
6: And is there a downside to overhyping a real danger? And so those are, quite frankly, blind spots I'm not quite sure we'll ever be able to get over. That's next time on Freakonomics
3: Radio. Beginning this evening at seven, following Counterspin. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Performing Arts Festival. Opera on the Rocks features classics from musical theater and opera July 1st at Hilo's Palace Theater and July 3rd at Mauna Resort. Tickets at hawaiiperformingartsfestival.org.
0: just coming off the first weekend of a shot clinic geared to families of children under five who want their keiki vaccinated against COVID-19. Dr. Douglas Kwok is vice president of medical affairs at Hawaii Pacific Health. He says no one knew what kind of response they were going to see. It offered shots at Kapilani Medical Mm -hmm. Center this past Saturday and Sunday, and it also offered a shot clinic um, on Saturday on Kauai. It administered about 800 Pfizer vaccinations at the launch and is scheduled additional clinics this coming month and next. Kwok says officials were pleased at the response.
6: We've been vaccinating adults for about a year and a half now, and we've administered, you know, more than 340,000 COVID vaccine doses. But finally, you know, with the FDA and CDC uh, authorization of vaccines for six months through four-year-olds, we were able to. We are. We're now able to support our community to give it to our younger children. So it was really exciting with our clinics the, this weekend. Uh, the the experience was fantastic. It was great to see parents coming by bringing their children. The parents were very happy to have their their children immunized. Uh, you know the children were a little bit apprehensive. Some of them were getting their shots, but once they once they got their shots. They were running around the observation area, playing around with some of the other kids that got their shots and whatnot. So it was a really great, fun experience. We heard some comments saying that, you know, it was almost like a vaccine Disneyland. Oh, really? (laughs) Right. You know, it was hard for us to judge the demand, but actually we ended up filling up all of our appointment slots. And, and, you know, total, we gave nearly 800 vaccines over the weekend on um, combined Oahu and Kauai. And, and of that, I, you know, just over 80% of them were first doses for six months through four-year age group. These parents were very happy and very thankful to get their children vaccinated. They were, you know, they were waiting Patiently, as we were vaccinating adults to to get the vaccine for, you know, their children's age group, finally we got it and they came this weekend. Um, So it was it was a great turnout.
0: Did you have to turn anybody away?
6: No, we did not have to turn anybody away. We were able to accommodate everybody. We do have enough vaccine doses and we anticipate that we will continue to get more vaccine doses as they're allotted to us.
0: What's the plan for additional
6: clinics? So the plan for additional clinics is that um, we're going to have clinics at Kapi'ilani. Our our, our next one is going to be Saturday, July 23rd. And then we have one on Saturday, August 13th and Saturday, August 27th. Those are the ones at Kapi'ilani. On uh, Kapolei High School, we have a a pop-up vaccine clinic. We'll be there on Saturday and Sunday, July 9th and July 10th. Saturday and Sunday, July 30th and July 31st and then Saturday and Sunday, September 24th, and September 25th. And on Kauai, uh, we'll be able to vaccinate on Saturday, July 16th, Saturday, August 6th, and Saturday, August 27th. And for anyone interested in making appointments for for a vaccine, they can visit our website, hawaiipacifichealth.org backslash COVID-19 vaccine and they'll find links on that website to set up appointments for their children to get vaccinated.
0: And you know what's been I guess the biggest question that most parents have you know whether they call or where they come to these clinics what what are they most concerned about?
6: Uh, I think a lot of them are asking appropriately what kind of side effects they should expect and what kind of things can we do for our child should they experience any side effects and you know, we've, we've, um, we've seen the studies, and the studies with regards to side effects have been really good. In fact, the side effects are, are about the same as any other vaccines you would get with the routine childhood uh, shots. So it's mainly pain, a little bit of redness, maybe some swelling at the injection site. For some of our younger children under two years of age, they might be a little bit irritable. They might have a little bit decreased activity, uh, uh, Sorry, decreased appetite. But for the most part it was a very safe, very safe experience. and Catherine, you know, um you know, I think a lot of people are are thinking that, you know, the children don't necessarily get sick because we are seeing from COVID because we're seeing more of the illness in adults. But you know, the truth is our children can get sick from COVID. Uh, and we do see children getting hospitalized for COVID, and we do know that there is something known as multi-inflammatory syndrome in children that's a post-COVID illness. And and so it's still very important for us to protect our children from COVID. Also, we know that that our children are interacting a lot with our kupuna because a lot of our kupuna here in Hawaii are caring for our children, and we want to be able to make sure that our children are protected so that they don't pose a potential to spread infection to our elderly population as well.
0: You know, I don't, I don't know what you can say about, you know, hospitalizations uh, at Hawaii Pacific Health. And I, I recall Dr. Um, Mellish talking about that inflammatory disease, you know, but can you say anything about the number of cases that HPH has, uh, has seen in, in the facilities there?
6: Well, I can tell you that at HPH, we, we're doing okay we, we, with COVID. We are not by any means being overrun with our healthcare resources, we're able to manage the patients that need to get hospitalized for COVID. Um, so we, we stand prepared to, to care for anybody that should require hospitalization.
0: And then the decision to just offer the Pfizer and not the Moderna. Um, yes, can you talk about some
6: that? slight differences, Catherine, between the the Moderna and the Pfizer in terms of dilution, in terms of age that vaccines are authorized for. So we really didn't want to create any confusing, confusing environment. We wanted to create a safe and efficient environment for our patients coming in. Uh, so in that regards, we, we elected to, to go with just one vaccine. And that one vaccine we're administering is the Pfizer vaccine.
0: And so if there are families out there that want the Moderna, um, they will just go elsewhere?
6: They would go elsewhere. They could look uh, look up uh, the State Department's health website to see where other vaccine sites are available and whether they're administering Moderna or or uh, Pfizer.
0: Do you think Hawaii Pacific Health will you know change its mind about offering just the one?
6: Well, I would say stay posted. But at, at this point in time, we we are going to continue with just Pfizer for now.
0: Okay. And then as far as availability, I mean, I don't know what you're hearing from the suppliers on the mainland. We should have ample vaccines uh, headed our way.
6: I haven't heard anything about availability, but we are ready to uh, administer shots as we get them. So however many we get, we are going to make sure that we are able to get them into our children.
0: And is there anything that parents need to know if, let's say, their child is due for just one of the regular vaccines, the childhood vaccines that they get? Uh, should they wait uh, any particular time if maybe they got a shot, you know, last week?
6: Yeah, good question, Catherine. The, the COVID vaccine does not have any any stipulations with regards to timing for other vac with other vaccines. So. Uh, you know, If a child were getting any of the other routines, they could get the COVID vaccine the same day actually or even at the, actually at the same time. So there is no timing uh, related to the COVID vaccine versus other vaccinations. Now, there are a couple of things that we're asking parents to be mindful of when they bring their children in for vaccine, make sure they bring in appropriate identification cards, make sure their children are accompanied by a parent or guardian. Have them dressed in in comfortable clothing because for children under two, we're administering the the, uh, immunization in thigh. So make sure the clothing is easy to to, uh, expose the area where they'll be getting the immunization. You know, just some suggestions uh, like that.
0: And that was Hawaii Pacific Health Dr. Douglas Kwok urging families to make reservations to get the vaccines for their young children. He assures that the MMR vaccines will not affect your DNA. He says that is still some of the bad information floating out there. And we can tell you that this week Kaiser Permanente began offering both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines at their facilities and have scheduled community vaccine events. And Queens Medical Center has also launched a schedule for shot clinics. Check for details on our website, waypublicradio.org, after the show. For today's Backyard Quiz, we were testing your knowledge of local folklore If you've lived here long enough, you've probably been told that you shouldn't carry pork, the answer to today's quiz, over the Pali Highway here on Oahu. Those who do risk their car stalling out until the meat is discarded. Some say that's because of an old feud between the goddess of fire, Pele, and the pigman demigod, Kamapua'a. As the legend goes, the two lovers had a disagreement, after which Pele chased Kamapua across Oahu with her lava flow. After uh, he got to the windward side of the island, he used a chant to raise up trees to hold back the lava and then call the rain to cool off the fire. With the two in an impasse, they came to an agreement. He will stay on his side of the island the wet, lush, and green windward side, and she will stay on her side of the island, the dry, arid, and hot leeward side, and none are to pass into each other's territory, which is why, to this day, some locals with pork in their vehicles choose to take the like like or the H3. Uh, congrats to uh, George from downtown Honolulu. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pineapple Tweed Public Relations and Marketing, believing in the value of creating a more informed public. A supporter of the reporting, news coverage, and storytelling heard daily on HPR.
7: Of the
0: next Fresh Air. John Vercher talks about his new novel, the story of a biracial, mixed martial arts fighter battling the effects of brain trauma while trying to revive his career. It's a story about the fight game, family, racial identity, and the ravages of dementia. It's called After the Lights Go Out. Join us.
3: Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect O'ahu's water resources, offering tips to conserve water, such as taking shorter showers and fixing leaks. Updates on Red Hill at protectoahuwater.org.
0: storyteller Lopaka Kapanui has been giving people chicken skin for over 20 years, earning the nickname The Ghost Guy. Lopaka grew up hearing old legends and ghost stories from his aunties, grandma, and other elders. He shares these stories on walking tours through some of the darkest, spookiest places, explaining why certain sites are haunted. The Conversations Lillian Song caught up with Kapanui before his upcoming storytelling concert
7: at the Hawaii Theater this Wednesday. You are noted as Hawaii's original longest-running ghost tour, Mm -hmm. established in 1997. We are now in 2022. Wednesday, you're giving a ghost storytelling concert at the Hawaii Theater. What will audiences see when they come?
8: What's going to happen is people will arrive to the venue not realizing that they also have their departed ancestors with them. And what might happen, even before I can begin, their departed ancestors will come on the stage and approach me and tell me, that's my granddaughter over there. Can you tell her to start gardening? A lot of times in different venues where I'm telling ghost stories, people's departed loved ones will literally hijack the show and not let me do anything until I at least relay two or three messages (laughs) to their living members in the audience. So when people are sitting in the audience and I, I look out there, I can see that certain people have, you know, spirits with them, sometimes family, other things. And a lot of times, you know, it's fine. I get through the show. You know, we have fun. But other times I will see the a, a spirit of a person who belongs to that living person in the audience, and I'll see them start to get up like this. I'm like, oh, my God. And they'll just run up on stage and tell me. Tell her, go back to Kauai because she hasn't seen me in in five or six years, you know, and she hasn't visited my grave. And that's what I have to do. I have to acknowledge at least two or three of them before I I can get started. And sometimes the spirits that are attached to the theater also decide to show up as well.
7: This is different from what you normally do, where you're walking outdoors, taking people into the space, Mm -hmm. into where these historical events happened and those spirits still exist and the living and that supernatural overlap.
8: Yeah. Well, the beauty of bringing that experience into a theater setting is, you know, we're not out in the open. There's no ambient noise or people to distract the process. And so being in a theater, you know, it's four walls, everyone's contained, and they can't go anywhere for an hour and a half. And so I have their complete attention my job as a storyteller is to be transformative, to literally transform them to the place that I'm talking about, you know, and have them feel all the emotions, smell the smells, you know, all of that stuff.
7: You actually have that connection with Glenn Grant. Yeah. I think a lot of people in Hawaii, the Obaki Files, there is that connection to the supernatural stories of Hawaii. How did you and Glenn work together?
8: So the short story is in... 1994. I was working at the Halikulani, and one evening everybody at the front desk is just raving about this downtown walking ghost tour conducted by a professor from the university. And so I went the following Wednesday and listened to what he had to say, and I realized this guy is telling most of the stories I heard growing up. And the following Wednesday after that, at hula practice, my cousin who was my Kumuhula, Said, Oh, by the way, uh, starting next month, our halal is gonna be part of this ghost tour out to Waianae, and I and it's with my good friend Glenn Grant. And he said, You guys are gonna be dancing the kahiko and he'll be doing the cultural part of it. And that's basically how we met. And the shorter story to that is one Saturday evening my cousin couldn't make it. He had to go to work in Washington, DC, and he told Glenn, and Glenn was in a panic and you know, told my cousin Keone, I don't know your part of the tour. Like I can't do it without your part. And so my cousin said, well, Lopaka knows it. He'll do it. And that's basically how it all started.
7: Wow. Really appreciate the fact that for you, though, you are saying, hey, these are the stories that our family knows. Mm -hmm. My aunties, my grandma telling these stories and connecting them. But for him, because he already had this, was it a ghost tour at that point already?
8: Yeah, it was a downtown ghost tour around the palace, that whole area. And so the good thing about these stories that he told, which I heard growing up, is he was able to back it up with, you know, historical fact and documentation, which made those stories a lot more rich and a lot more relatable.
7: I second that. I appreciate the fact that you do include on your website those vintage newspaper clippings that verify Mm -hmm. that these stories were already out there decades ago, and they continue to resonate in maybe one iteration or another iteration, but the same kind of supernatural occurrence is still being felt in this place. How do you go out collecting these stories? Because on your website, it's very easy to follow, to access. And so you've done the hard work putting this all together.
8: Well, it's partly me, but mostly my wife. Mm. Uh, She's a big nerd. So Once she found access to the archives and, you know, old maps and things online, she just went crazy.
7: So you are sharing the history of Hawaii, telling these stories of people that went on already. Mm -hmm. So tell us a story. Are you sure? Okay. Well, let's keep, (laughs) keep in mind we are public radio. Maybe something to give us a taste, an experience of what you do.
8: Yeah, so there's those banyan trees between the old State ID building and Ali'i Olani Hale in that parking lot. Coming down, Punchbowl, you pass the State Library, you pass the intersection, it's that first right turn behind the bus stop. Mm-hmm. What I found out is that when uh, the Chinese, Eastern Indians, and the Filipinos brought their own variety of ficus or banyan to Hawaii, over the years, you know, local people began to realize there's a similarity, and that is, the further out the branches spread, the more they're able to latch on to these spirits of the restless dead, dark shadowy human figures with red glowing eyes. In the Philippines, it's often referred to as baleté, the banyan tree. And so, there's a belief that after the the services for a departed one, uh, sometimes they will wrap the body in fiber made from pineapple, and they'll place the body within the confines of a, a baleté or a banyan tree because now that body is for or belongs to the gods or the spirits that live in those balete, those banyan trees. Last year around this time, I realized by one of my sheriff friends that once a month, they have to show up and do overnight duty because electricians, for some strange reason, once a month, have to go to the basement of the old state ID building and fix stuff because the electricity is going haywire. And the sheriffs have told me when they originally started doing this, they would park under the banyan tree, but then they learned a lesson. And the lesson was, they would hear what sounded like long fingernails tapping on the window. And they would look out, and there wouldn't be anything physical there, but they swore they could see a shadow. And other times when they're standing outside the squad car just hanging out, having conversations, they said they look up into the branches of those banyan trees, and they can literally see large shadowy figures moving through the branches, like one through the other. And sometimes the sheriff will say, he will hear a disembodied voice whisper his name, but it's only the name his mom calls him. Sometimes they'll feel a hand go through their hair like this. One of the electricians told me he was downstairs one night on the ladder, screwing in a new light fixture, and he said his son was holding down the bottom part of the ladder so he wouldn't fall. And he said, while he's doing this, screwing in the light fixture, he feels two thumbs insert itself into his, the waistband of his pants, sort of adjust it, and then pull it up because his pants was beginning to fall down. He was so scared, he nearly fell off the ladder and was more upset that his son wasn't holding the ladder. And so he's screaming for his son, and he realizes afterwards that the son never actually came down with him He left the truck with all the stuff and assumed that his son had followed him, but his son had been sleeping in the truck the whole time. During that period, who was holding down the ladder? He said, I saw someone there holding it down, but who was it actually? Mm -hmm. The history of that building is that there's a cornerstone of that building that was laid by Governor Wallace Ryder Farrington. He was a Freemason. And so that's actually a Masonic cornerstone what we find out later is that after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, you know, there are so many bodies, they ran out of room for them to store on base. So the basement of that old CID building was the temporary morgue during that time. So there's there's that.
7: There is that spiritual history of the deceased. It was a repository.
8: Yeah. Yeah.
7: And another site that comes to mind is Helamoa in Waikiki. Mm.
8: Yeah. So what's there now? The former... Helomua Heo is uh, part of the Royal Hawaiian Shopping Center, but also the hotel itself. And there's an article from the 1800s where Mr. Damon is directing a bunch of Japanese labor workers to uproot and cut down all those, those ancient trees planted by kakuihava. And so the Japanese laborers are working. It's about noon. They take a break. And what's happening is the way in in which they're trying to uproot those trees is, is sort of difficult. And so that's why they have to stop and take a break. And the article says that some of the men are returning and that there was a fish pond in that area that grew a moi fish. And this wind comes through the place, it's just wrecking everything. And Mr. Damon hears all these Japanese men screaming and running for their life and what's happening? Is somehow the wind has upended these coconut trees that the roots at the bottom are coming up like catapults. But what they're catapulting are human remains, skeletons caught within the roots of those old kumunio, those coconut trees. And Mr. Damon, to his horror, witnesses that these skulls and rib cages and femurs are catapulting like this and actually beating these Japanese labor workers as they're running away, catching them in the back of the head, you know. Ah! I can't name names, but certain staff at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel were horrified to know that this actually took place. There's also a night marcher's procession going through the grounds of the Royal Hawaiian Hotel as well.
7: And you have so many stories. Just on the website, about over 28 highlighted. How do you collect them?
8: You know, reading, Mm -hmm. uh, listening. But a lot of times, people contact me through all types of mediums to, to share personal experience and those, those are the best ones because they come from everyday people, especially people who work at jobs where they're not trained to think or believe in things like spirits, uh, like police officers. So when someone tells me their personal experience, and what would usually be a five-minute story takes them like almost an hour because there's so much emotion in it, you know, and they have to stop and gather themselves. Those are the best stories. And so when they give me permission to tell them, I want to make sure that I get everything correct because I don't want to insult their ancestors, you know, and their lineage. So, yeah. I'm funny about the details.
7: (laughs) With the details, you're allowing your audience to really see the story that you are sharing, putting us into a sense of history, into a sense of place. Are there similarities or are there really malevolent beings that you would then tell people to be to be mindful of, I think like the Pali, the Judd Trail,
2: Hmm.
7: was one where there were just a lot of deaths occurring.
8: Yeah. There's a lot more malevolent people than there are spirits. So what I also help make people aware of is that whatever does or doesn't happen at night has nothing to do with me, even though I'm the guy that's going to be, you know, waffling on for an hour and a half. I tell people, whatever happens tonight depends on you because you're now here with all of your stuff you know collectively emotionally f- physically spiritually like everything you have with you all your stuff is, is here right now and I said that will determine what happens or doesn't happen and I, I tell them if you know you're here to see a ghost you're going to be disappointed because ghosts are only residual it's like watching a recording it's leftover human energy in a place that just plays itself back so you shouldn't be afraid of a ghost doesn't even know that you're there so I tell them what What you're hoping for is an encounter with something that's cognizant, that's aware that it's dead, it's aware it can't move on, but it's also aware of us. And I share with them that when a spirit like that is aware of a human being that is aware of it, that's when communication starts to happen. So it's not possession, it's not an attachment, it's clear communication. So if you and I are the only two people in a room full of, let's say, Rotarians, we see each other across the room and we recognize each other, the first thing we want to do is communicate, say hi, or you know, try at least to touch one another. Spirits work in that same way, but the reason they can't get through to us all the time is because as human beings, we're focused on job, family, relationships. So what that spirit will do is go to the person closest to you who's more receptive. So one person called me crying and she said, you know, my best friend from, from childhood, Uh, I had a dream that her mom came to me, and and the mom actually told me, can you tell her I don't mind when she comes to leave food at the headstone, but please take it away. I hate the bugs. And so she says, I went to my friend, and I told her the exact detail of what her mom told me in, in my dream. And you know what my friend said? What the hell? That's my mom. Why is she talking to you? She should be talking to me. Well, I told her that's because your friend's concentration is somewhere else. And so you're the only receptive person next to your friend. That's why the mom came to see you. So that sort of makes them feel, I don't know what the word is, responsible. You know, it it gives them this sort of hope. Like, okay, they realize, wow, so I can do this or I cannot do this. You know, it's Mm -hmm. up to me.
0: That was master storyteller Lopaka Kapanui talking with the Conversations Lillian Song. They were discussing supernatural spirits in Hawaii. He will be sharing chicken skin ghost stories tomorrow evening at 7 at the Hawaii Theater. We'll have links on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org later today. that wraps it up for us today tomorrow we plan to learn about something called grid resiliency got some story ideas for us give us some feedback email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org you can also connect with us on Facebook I'm Catherine Cruz join us tomorrow for more of the conversation